Acts chapter 17 this evening. If you'll join with me, please follow along. The last time we were in Acts, it's been a little while, but last time we were together in this wonderful book, it had been quite a ride for our heroes. Paul and Silas had faced down a demon, a riot, then a brutal beating. That was only the opening act, of course. That night was the main event. Their stay in the Philippian jail, songs at midnight, earthquakes, souls saved, lives changed, midnight baptism, and finally, Paul secures a thrilling victory, revealing his Roman citizenship at just the right moment, leaving the fledgling church protected, at least for a time, from the meddling of unfriendly officials. Now, in modern times, this would have been a good opportunity for Paul to head home, secure a book deal, and write a best-selling memoir. If Paul had a publicist, they would have said, now's the time, we gotta cash in on this. You know, this story couldn't have gone any better. But of course, that's not what happens. For Paul, there were still other roads to take, other cities to visit, other crowds that desperately needed the gospel. Already in his life as a missionary, he's been beaten severely multiple times, stoned to death, maligned, run out of various towns. And yet on he goes with his friends, convincing all kinds of people everywhere that he goes to, to join him in this life of faith. Want to be like me? You'd think he would be a public service announcement in the other direction, like those, um, like those horrifying uh, anti-smoking commercials that they show. Like, don't smoke, kids. You would think Paul would be like a, don't become a Christian, kids, look at me. But he's the opposite. Everywhere he goes, people look at him and they hear from him and they see his scars and his weeping eyes and his pennilessness and all of the trouble he's in. And they say, yeah, I want in on that. I want to be a part of that. Tonight, with the drama in Philippi in his rear view, Paul continues on, knowing that he could expect the same sort of violent opposition to be waiting for him in the next town, and then in the next town after that, and the town after that too. But on they go in quiet courage, not parading themselves, not capitalizing on their exploits for personal gain, but driving deeper and deeper behind enemy lines in their mission to seek and to save those who were lost. As he goes, we see that his companions also live out a strong but quiet courage, as do the new Christians that are made as they move from city after city. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 17, and we read, after they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Despite all that Paul had suffered at the hands of his countrymen, he never lost hope that they might still have their eyes open. That's a pretty remarkable thing. Of course, the Gentiles didn't treat Paul much better, but when going to see these Jewish communities, synagogue after synagogue, city after city, he knew that there would be a very strong reaction to his message. Uh, Some people would believe and receive Christ, but others would actively reject what he was saying. And that rejection often included violent outbursts. He understood this all too well because he had had that kind of reaction for many years of his life when he was the church's chief enemy. But still, in place after place, he took courage and walked through the doors. Now listen, when I come here on Wednesday nights, I don't usually find myself thinking, they might kill me for what I'm going to say today. Uh, I've never thought that, coming to you wonderful group of people. And... But Paul did. Have you ever gone to your job and thought, 
They might kill me today for what I'm about to do, for what I'm about to say. And, and to think that all he was doing was showing them the way to everlasting life, the way that they could know their own Messiah, the one they'd been waiting for. And yet he went, you know, Sabbath after Sabbath, synagogue after synagogue, saying, hey, you know, this might be it. This might be my last one. Each Sabbath was like being landed on the beach at Normandy. Is there anything more terrifying in, in depictions of photographs or, you know, movies, you know, where they show those, those weird landing craft and, and, and those young men, those boys in there waiting for the ramp to go down? And we know what's coming uh, even more than they do because we're students of history. And uh, that's what Paul was doing every time he walked through the doors of one of these synagogues. In this case, the city was Thessalonica. His first letter to them would be the earliest of his epistles that we have in the New Testament. It's kind of interesting. Though his visit with them will be brief, just three weeks probably, the impact was great. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes the believers there as being full of work and faith, motivated by love, showing endurance and hope in spite of suffering. He says that the gospel came to them in power, which suggests that there were some pretty remarkable things happening in those three weeks that he and the team were there. One quick note about the team. We notice that Dr. Luke no longer includes himself in the narrative. He's talking about they and them, not we and us anymore. And so it seems that he stayed back in Philippi to continue the work there. He'll join back up with the guys in chapter 20, but for now he's willing to man the fort back in Philippi as they press forward onto new territories. And you know, sometimes spiritual courage means doing something that isn't actually your job. Uh, and we use uh, Luke here as that example, as that demonstration. Can you even imagine Luke, uh, this author of Acts, Luke saying, you know, I'm a doctor, not a babysitter. He's not like Dr. McCoy in Star Trek who never wanted to do anything because I'm a doctor. He didn't say, hey, look, I'm a doctor. Or I'm a historian, not a pastor. And I don't know these people, and they've got a lot going on, and I'm, you know, we don't know if he had Roman citizenship or not, but we don't see him doing that. Now remember, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Now sometimes we think about that, you know, when we see it on the graduation, you know, announcement or on the back of a t-shirt, that's all fine. We think about how, you know, I can do things that are beyond myself. I can do great things that I didn't think I was capable of. And, and that's true. That's wonderful. But we also want to think about it this way. I can do all things, things that aren't my job. You know, we need to sometimes think about how, yeah, I can do all things that are beneath me too, not just things that are greater than the sum of my parts, which the Lord does accomplish through his people. But God also says, yeah, through Christ, I am gonna help you be able to do all things like taking the place of the lowest servant and washing the feet of people when nobody else wants to do it. You can do all things like that as well. And so Luke here is doing something that he wasn't necessarily trained for, wasn't necessarily on the team for, right? And he might have even had a conflict in his mind thinking, you know, Paul is hobbling on, down the road on his way to these other towns. His wounds aren't even fully healed yet. We talked last time about what might have been going on with infection and the openness of the wound since the jailer hadn't let them be tended to, and so they were all messed up. And so it's even possible that he thought, well, it might be irresponsible for me as the doctor, as the physician, to stay back here, and yet he was willing to do that 
and not just say, well, I think of myself as the doctor. That's who I am, and so that's what I do. We're to think of ourselves in the situations we find ourselves in, not as, well, I'm the doctor, right? I'm the whatever I'm trained for, whatever I want to do, or whatever I, you know, think I've been, you know, prepared to do. Rather, we're just to think of ourselves as, I'm God's man, I'm God's woman. And as God's man or as God's woman, in whatever situation I find myself in, I'm going to make myself available to whatever needs doing. And we see Luke doing that here. We notice also that Paul's appeal to these folks was made from the scriptures. He came with God's eternal revealed truth and appealed from it, not from trends, not what would sound most pleasing, not what would get him the most clicks or anything like that. He said, I'm going to appeal from the scripture. Sometimes in discussions on evangelism or apologetics, you might hear the question, and you know, if you watch any kind of videos like this on YouTube, it'll eventually pop up in your feed. How do you prove the existence of God to an atheist not using the Bible? Or how do I preach to a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness not using the Bible but using their own books? And listen, those questions are understandable and aren't necessarily wrong. However, they do sort of move us down the line toward this idea that, well, the answers are found in intellect and reason. That's what's going to convert a person. The, 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 the person who hates God and, and claims to be an atheist, intellect and reason is what are going, those are the things that are going to convince them to become a Christian. And look, intellect and reason are important and significant. And apologetics are important and significant, but Paul would later explain very clearly that it is the gospel that is the power of God that brings salvation, not just airtight arguments of human logic. It's God's revealed truth that sometimes confounds human logic, that truth contained in his word, and we're not to be ashamed of it. Instead, we're to appeal to it all the time like Paul is doing here. Of course, Paul met people where they were at. And of course, when we're sharing with people, especially those hostile to Jesus Christ or those trapped in a cult or something like that, we want to meet them where they're at. Mars Hill is going to be a wonderful example of that in a few passages. But when the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and if you want to interact with them, it's going to help to know a thing or two about their translation, how it works, uh, so that we can bridge from where they are to the truth, right? Because we have the truth, the revealed truth, the eternal truth, the infallible word of God. But while we want to meet people where they're at, we want to be sure not to leave them in their ignorance. We want to be sure that we're not just trying to convince the atheist that this argument is better in your mind for right now, right? Because that's not what is going to convince a person to surrender to Jesus Christ. Now, here was the main thrust of Paul's message to the Thessalonians. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Very clear, very plain. Jesus is the Messiah. He said the name. In popular culture right now, especially on social media, you'll see people often talking about someone who has been killed in some altercation. And what do they say? They say, say his name, say her name. We see hashtags of it. We see t-shirts of it and all these, and all these different sides are using it and everybody's mad at everybody. But you know, when it comes to the spiritual message, we do need to say the name of Jesus. We do need to clearly explain that. Yeah, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Nazarene, he is the Messiah. 
Paul knew it would be very controversial for him to speak this way to these devout Jews, but he was not willing to leave them with just some sort of ambiguous message. Like he didn't just come and say, you know, you guys, let go and let God, and I'll talk to you next week, right? He, he explained again and again, he's like, hey, listen up, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Now let me talk to you about him and how we know that and why we know that and why that matters and what it means for your life. This is why we went sometimes when we see prominent Christians or prominent pastors on, say, like a national news outlet, and, and they, set, they set them up, they, they lob that ball in there, and, and, and if that individual gives some sort of ambiguous, well, you know, God loves all people, and that's all I really want to say. Oh, like, man, it's so deflating. As opposed to when you see an individual who represents Jesus Christ and they say, what do you have to say about this current event that's going on? I don't know what's going on about this current event, but I know that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And, he, and if you're watching, he died for your sins and he can save you from the guilt of your sin right now. And we're like, yes, because that's the truth. That's the thrust of the message. Now we're told that he proved the necessity and the reality of Christ's sufferings and resurrection. And what a comfort to know that what God has revealed is objective truth. Listen, some of these other religions and traditions and cults and things like that, they rely on, well, they rely on things like uh, a special spiritual being appeared to me. No one else saw him. You can't talk to him, but take my word for it. And what he told me completely contradicts not only science, but it contradicts the Bible. It contradicts human reasoning. It contradicts everything, but go ahead and take my word for it. Can you prove anything of what he said? No, just... I wouldn't lie to you. Also, I need all your money, right? This is what happens a lot of times in different cults or different world religions, things like that. And what a comfort it is that, you know, what God has revealed in his scripture is objective truth. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most provable events in human history. Even though there weren't cameras or video or anything like that, using the method by which we know history if you say, okay, let's go before recording devices, how do we know whether things happened or not? How do we know George Washington existed? If you said that to someone, they would scoff, right? How do we know that Alexander the Great existed? How do we know that there was a Caesar Nero? We all take that for granted, of course. And then people come along and say, if Jesus even existed, he probably didn't. If we use the standards by which anyone studies history on any level, then the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most provable event in ancient history. It just is. We're not just saying that because it makes us feel good. It's absolutely true. And the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the carpenter, right? The fact that he was indeed the long expected Jewish Messiah is objectively provable. We can look into the infallible word of God and decode who that anointed one was going to be. We knew when he would come. We know from where he would come, what tribe he would have been a part of. We know what his works would be. Christ Jesus was that one, and he alone fits the list to a degree that is mathematically impossible to calculate. And it's just objectively true. If you're someone who feels like you have a good handle on how to tell people about who Jesus is, you know how to tell the story of Jesus, but maybe you would like a little bit of help with the proving part. 
that sort of apologetic part that is important and significant. There are a number of helpful books that can get you started and, just sh- and show just how rock solid our faith is. Three books that will get you on your way that have been helpful for me are Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, and God's Not Dead by Rice Brooks. There are many more. Those are a good place to start. Just wonderful, wonderful resources to remind us that what we're talking about is true, as true as two plus two equals four, as true as anything else that you take as a for-granted truth that Jesus Christ not only existed, but he was the one Messiah. He was the only one who could have been the Messiah. He really did die. He really did rise from the dead. And because of that, all of humanity, uh, the future and the past are forever changed. Now, why was it necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise again? This idea of a slain savior really was difficult for even thoughtful spiritual seekers to grab onto. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Thoughtful guy, smart guy, really seeking after God. He's reading this passage about the suffering savior and he's like, who's this dude talking about? He's talking about someone else, right? And then Philip had to say, well, let me explain this to you. No, he's talking about the savior, the one, the Christ. He had to suffer. What's up with that? And the Jews, we see, had a really hard time with that. The Jews still have a hard time with that. Orthodox Jews, they don't want to accept the idea of a suffering Savior. The question is, couldn't the Messiah have come and fixed everything by executive order? That's what happens here, right? That's what, <laughs> that's what happens every four years or so. Just get that pen out. Nothing's happening in Congress. Now it is, right? We, are, we're, we live in the land of executive orders now. And people say, is that legal that they just did that? It's fine. Don't worry about it. And then the next guy comes in and he says, I'm signing a thing that says you can't do what that guy did, right? And you just go back and forth. Well, why couldn't the Messiah just do that? Isn't he God after all? Couldn't he just show up and be like, Matt, we're done here. Reboot. We're we're doing a hard reboot here. No, the Christ had to suffer and he had to rise. It had to happen because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And without the resurrection, we are hopeless and of all people, most pitiable. Not to mention the fact that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, he was a liar and a lunatic and shouldn't be listened to. Now, there are essentials in the Christian faith, and the death and resurrection of Jesus are two of them. Can't let those go. We can't say, well, you know, believe it or not, there are, you know, in Christian history, traditions of people who call themselves Christian who say that it doesn't really matter if Christ really rose from the dead. Oh, yes, it does. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, let's all go home right now. Uh, That's what Paul said outright. Verse four, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. Listen, proof alone cannot turn a human heart. If it could, then everyone would have been saved and everyone would be saved every time you preach the gospel. No, there has to be a surrender in the will. Happily, in this case, many did surrender and acknowledge Christ as savior and king. Now, interestingly, in describing the conversions here, Luke says they joined Paul and Silas. Kind of a strange term, strange way to think about it. But there was an immediate coming together, an immediate tying with one another, the founding of a community. They were knit together into a local church body, all united, despite their differences in class or status or even nationality. Like that, they were all joined up together. Verse five, but the Jews became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. 
Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. And they are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset. There was a time when a riot like this seemed like a strange and antiquated thing, or at least a faraway thing, right? Not so much anymore. Of course, this is still what many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world deal with on a regular basis. It happens all the time in Africa, in the Middle East, in China, and so we want to be in prayer for those suffering things like this. Now, Paul and Silas were the targets here, but, you know, if they couldn't be found, any old Christian would do. Just find us some Christians. Let's just go find them. Jason, for his part, wasn't some sort of powerful, influential person. He's just a guy with a house. He's not an apostle, but you know, he was a Christian and that was enough. Sometimes in life, you're presented with out of the blue difficulty, whether it's in the form of persecution or other suffering. We can take courage and know that God has not left us or abandoned us or forgotten us, even when something as frightening and unpredictable as this happens. Now, there in verse 6, they utter that incredible line, these men have turned the world upside down. What a great thing to have said. Ironically, if these Christians were so dynamic and powerful and world-flipping over, you'd think that the people of the mob would have been slow to move against them and quick to hear what they have to say. But these are people held captive by the devil to do his will. Now, I do love the fact that Jason and these other fellows were included in the accusation. Think about that for a minute. They hadn't done anything. They probably hadn't even preached to anybody. All they had done is join the family and shown a little hospitality, right? But the angry mob said, they're part of the whole thing. These are part of the group that's turning the, the world upside down. And you know what? That's true. They were part of it. They were part of the ongoing work of the body of Christ, the body of Christ universal, and his global work that he's doing, we are knit together as we cooperate with the Lord and as we obey him and honor him and worship him, we're included in the work that he's doing in far off places. Your small actions done unto the Lord have eternal weight. That is a wonderful thing. As for the turning the world upside down, it's a good reminder of what the goal of Christian ministry is. Listen, our goal is not to make sinners more comfortable on their way to hell but to rescue them. They are in the depths of their guilt. They're swimming ever deeper down into the abyss of that guilt. And then God sends us to go and grab them and help them understand that, hey, there's life above up in the other direction. You're about to die and never be saved ever again, but come with me and let me get you up to the surface and you can have life everlasting. Now, as for the charge that they were acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, well, that was mostly untrue, of course. It had only been like two or three weeks. They didn't have time to contradict Caesar's decrees. They didn't have time to refuse to pay their taxes. They were great citizens. They, weren't, they were ones who weren't taking advantage of people. They weren't cheating the system. They weren't starting riots. It's true that they now bowed their knees to a greater king, King Jesus, but they weren't bad citizens. They were wonderful citizens. Who's the ones, who are the ones rioting here? It's not the Christians. But listen, it is true that, yeah, we, we do serve a greater king. As far as the hierarchy goes, we've got a king. His name is Jesus. Caesar is doing whatever he's doing, but that's the guy on the throne 
who I am obeying and worshiping. And you know, in the land of liberty, it's always good to be reminded that we serve a king. Americans don't like kings historically, right? We like kings in the church. We have a king. We belong to him, and it is our duty to carry out his will no matter what it is. Verse 9, after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. Jason and the brothers are silent in this story. They demonstrate a lot of quiet courage to endure faithfully, even in the face of complete injustice, complete unfairness. This was completely unfair. This was completely unright. This was completely unjust. And yet they just quietly endure and quietly continue. They paid the fine. In this case, they wouldn't have to pay in blood, but in silver. But there was still a price to pay, and they were willing to pay it. You know, so far in American history, it has been very inexpensive for people to be Christians, right? In engaging with our government and our culture and all of that. Uh, that may be changing. For some churches, it actually has changed, right? As fines are coming down and as threats are coming down and as things are starting to become more costly, as people are coming out and putting padlocks on doors. I mean, praise the Lord that we don't live in a place like that. That's persecution. You know, we, other Calvaries we know, lots of other churches in the nation are being sent fines. You owe thousands of dollars because you dared to meet to worship your God. And, you know, um, who knows if that's going to become the way things happen or whether that's all going to blow over. We don't know. We just know that it's not unusual for that to happen, historically speaking. What we enjoy is the unusual thing, uh, uh, an inexpensive uh, public faith is the unusual thing when you look at the history of Christianity and you look at the rest of the world around us. And so we just need to be in prayer uh, about all of that kind of stuff. No matter what happens, we can trust the Lord and that he will guide us. And however he guides us, we can walk in quiet courage like these infant believers in Thessalonica. It is courage to live a life forfeit to God. Verse 10 as soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Hold there for a minute. It would be about 50 miles to Berea, not exactly a safe trip uh, overnight to do, but courage again from Paul and Silas. It seems that as Luke had been left in Philippi, Timothy was left in Thessalonica. That would have taken some courage. This young man, very young probably, left to tend a brand new church that was being actively persecuted. You're cool to stay, right? All right, we'll see ya. Um, yeah, that's, that's, some, that's some bravery. Verse 10 continues, upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Hey, uh, maybe let's try a local park or something this time. What if instead of going into the synagogue and maybe being murdered, we went to like the market? That's what I would have been saying. <laughs> uh, you know, in one sense, things seemed to go poorly when they did synagogue outreach, uh, and it's true, Paul's method did lead, uh, meet a lot of resistance, and it's easy for us to focus on the opposition in these stories, but we also see that every time he went to a synagogue, a lot of people gave their lives to Christ. Thessalonica, Berea, these other places. Yeah, there were people who said, okay, we're going to murder you, but on the other hand, there were a lot of people who said, I've decided to follow Jesus, and so that's a good thing. Look at verse 11. That's what happens. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. Now, do we need to cancel Luke for being racist here? 
being anti, anti-Thessalonican here. What's this nobility talk? You can't say things like that. Like a lot of Bible words, the term is sort of a wide one, but most resources agree that the sense of the word is generous. They were of more generous character and persuasion. The people of Berea had a greater generosity of heart and mind than their neighbors 50 miles away. The truth is, we all know that different cities and regions have a vibe, right? Uh, if I just list started listing off a couple of cities, it would immediately conjure, perhaps stereotypical, but often earned attitudes, right? Earned characteristics. It doesn't matter, for example, where you go. It doesn't matter where you go. Everyone is nicer than Californians. It's just true. And I'm including myself, right? I remember when we like, when we, the first time we were going to Columbia, of course, we were all raised through the, you know, end of the 20th century that Columbia was like this really scary place and there's just, you know, piles of drugs everywhere and, and the FARC are just killing everybody. It's like, you know, we'd go down to Columbia and I was like, oh no, they're so much nicer than everybody. Like, oh, like they're so much kinder and more polite. Everybody's just more polite than Californians. That's just the way it goes. Economists and sociologists study this kind of thing all the time, of course. Barna is a group that studies things like this. In 2016, they listed El Paso, Texas, and Las Cruces, New Mexico as the most generous cities in America. In the top 50, there was one city from California in that list. You want to know what the city was? Fresno Visalia. We're included in that. That's us. We're in there. We're in there. We're taking it. That region, which includes us, ranked at number 29 out of 50. <laughs> now, Barna also researched the most Bible-minded cities in the United States. Fresno Visalia came in at 71 out of 100. But that's not so great, except there's only one California city higher than that, San Diego, at 70. So there's 69 other cities, and then finally California shows up in 70, 71, and then there's another one farther down. But look, there are different characteristics to different places. That's all. In verse 12, it says, consequently. Your version might say, therefore, as a result. The consequence of a person examining the scriptures should be life change. That's not only for people who get saved, but for you and me as well. As believers, we are to continue in an ongoing study of the Bible, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us in all truth. Man, read Psalm 119. Listen to that on your drive home tonight or you know, when you're getting ready tomorrow, making your coffee. And just listen to that person talk about, man, I just, I just want the Word of God to keep teaching me, to keep leading me, to keep changing me. It's not a brand new convert. That's somebody who's like, yeah, I'm leaving my life for the Lord. And you know what I need? I need the word of God to change me. And, and that's the case for us. As believers, we are to continue in an ongoing study of the Bible. And our lives should be continually changed by the power of God's word. And when we minister to others, we should always appeal to scripture because it is powerful and life-changing. Verse 13, but when the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. As God sends out his workers into the field, so the devil sends out his to sow tares and ruin young crops if he can. Listen, there is a satanic agenda in the world operating today, one that is anti-God, anti-church, anti-Israel, and it permeates the world. And though we cannot always predict when he will launch an attack, we can expect our enemy to stand in opposition and to marshal his forces whenever he can to fight against God's work and God's people. 
Verse 14, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So we don't know all the timeline. It seems that at some point Timothy had rejoined the group and we don't know exactly how long they were there, but now this is happening. Again, we see a determined, quiet courage defining these Christians. You see it in Silas and Timothy willing to stay behind while being spiritually shelled by the enemy. We see it in those brand new believers who were willing to escort Paul to Athens and stand alongside him despite the danger they were facing. Why leave Silas and Timothy only to have them come and join him a few days later? We can't be sure. Perhaps the situation was so serious and dangerous that they had to just get Paul out as quickly as possible, maybe like a lowering in the basket situation. Uh, Maybe they didn't have time to prepare properly. I also think it's because Paul and the guys knew that for these brand new churches, even a couple more days of instruction and ministry would make a big, big difference. When you're an infant believer out in pagan Greece, six days with an apostle is a lot better than three days with an apostle, right? and they needed every precious ounce of spiritual guidance. Of course, even when the team left, these Greek Christians were never alone. They had each other, they had the spirit, they had the filling of God's courage and the demonstration of how to use that courage as they began their own walks with the Lord. Tonight, each of us can take courage, keep up that courage, and then move forward in the power of God, relying on his word, to continue the life-changing work in our hearts and in the lives of the people that we're trying to rescue. As we live out our days, we should do so with quiet resolve, generosity, and thoughtfulness, being willing to do whatever needs doing, expecting opposition, but remembering that our King is on our side and He is leading the way, lighting our path, equipping us as we go through this world, proclaiming the good news of our sure Messiah. Amen?